This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, professor and author Gugi Othiongo discusses his new book, Birth of a Dreamweaver, a memoir of a writer's awakening. Then PW senior news editor Calvin Reed recaps New York Comic Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What so, you got, Mark? Well, let's let's do this thematically. All right. um, there's the the self help kinds of books. So we've got at number four, that's our highest debut. Love your life, not theirs. Seven money habits for living the life you want by Rachel Cruz, and the subtitle kind of tells it all. So it's a finance book. We have. Also, Joel Austin's newest book, Think Better, Live Better, Victorious Living Starts in Your Mind. So we say in what reads like a very long version of one of his feel-good sermons, best-selling author in Texas, megachurch pastor Austin preaches a message of positive thinking. Austin writes in his uplifting call to action that one way or another, you're going to become what you think. So we've got becoming what you want through money and becoming what you want through just interchange. So that's what we have there. We have our uh, political book at uh, number 12. There's, it seems like on every week there's a anti-Hillary Clinton book. This is by Edward Klein. And this is called Guilty as Sin, Uncovering New Evidence of Corruption and How Hillary Clinton and the Democrats Derailed the FBI Investigation. Of course, this is the uh, investigation uh, investigation into her server. So that's at number 12 on our bestseller list. Sure, there'll be more next week. Always. Uh, and then uh, food. We'll talk a little bit about food. Food Freedom Forever, Letting Go of Bad Habits, Guilt, and Anxiety Around Food by Melissa Hartwig. Now, Melissa, uh, uh, she's a nutritionist who started the, who had the Whole30 cookbook, the Whole30 uh, program. And this is at number eight, debuting. And this is more of a uh, narrative than, than, a, than a cookbook, although there are some recipes in it. And then at number 11, we have a starred review of Deep Run Roots, Stories and Recipes from My Corner of the South by Vivian Howard. And this comes on the heels of her Peabody Award-winning PBS show, A Chef's Life. Howard, who's a restaurateur and author of The Chef and the Farmer, shares personal stories and 240 recipes inspired by the fair around her hometown of Deep Run, North Carolina in this outstanding debut, we say. This is a tribute to her family roots is destined to become an enduring classic. Um, so we've got, wow. we've got, so this is, this is a review ran just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that's at number 11. At number 15, we have the Big American Cookbook, 250 Favorites from Across the USA by Mario Batali. Most people know him from The Chew, uh, from Molto Mario. He's the author of Molto Italiano, the Babo Cookbook, Restaurateur of 
nearly a dozen restaurants, it seems. Um, and this one, he is not Italo-centric. He just has traveled around the country picking out the uh, best regional recipes. And here he presents them. It's at number 25. And finally, we've seen no shortage of religious uh, books. And we have at number five, Is This the End? Signs of God's Providence and a Disturbing New World by David Jeremiah. And then we have at number six, right behind that, Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation by Richard Rohr. Uh, What if changing our perception of God has the potential to change everything uh, the book posits? And that's pretty much what we have on our nonfiction bestselling list. Well, on the fiction hardcover bestseller list, we're also starting to see some inspirational titles crop up as Christmas gets closer. Mm. Um, October is the official publication month for a lot of Christmas-themed oh, fiction wow. books. Yeah. Um, gets people in the spirit and lets you do your Christmas shopping a little early. And uh, notably there, we at number four, we have 12 Days of Christmas by Debbie McComber. And uh, it, she's obviously a mega bestseller of uh, women's fiction and romantic fiction and this is a holiday themed contemporary obviously and in this case uh, it's a it features a, a very harried woman uh, who's working full-time at macy's during the holiday season volunteering at boys and girls club and is uh, trying to get a job at a seattle software mm. company so she's just launched a blog and uh, she keeps running into her humbuggy next door neighbor trying to be sociable. He brushes her off. Obviously, romance is just mm, around, the just around the corner. And uh, we say that the, the spirit of Christmas doesn't have much time to work lasting magic on her neighbor before he learns that she is portraying him as a Scrooge who is the target of her kindness campaign. <laughs> and uh, McComber's celebrated warmth and flair for storytelling make this a fun holiday frolic despite the overly perky heroine and predictable plot according to our review right. so uh, that's number four going back up to number one with two by two uh Maybe ironically by uh, Nicholas Sparks, always right at the top of the list, sold nearly 64,000 copies. Uh, it's wow. first, first week out. Uh, it's first full week out, uh-huh. I should say. It's going to appear on our bestseller list technically as it's being in its second week, but this is its first, right. first okay. week of real sales. And, uh, it's a Nicholas Sparks novel. We don't have a review of it, um, but it's about a marriage that looks perfect on the surface, but underneath, all is not well, and uh, in in this case, uh, the hero is uh, ends up being uh, without a job, without a wife, caring for his young daughter uh, while trying to get used to his new life and the collapse mm. of the fairy tale that he thought he right. was in. And uh, you know, Nicholas Sparks is very good at these uh, these feel good romantic stories so I, I don't think we're allowed to call them romances he says he doesn't write romance novels they just happen to all have romantic storylines and happy right. endings but right. um coincidence right i'm sure <laughs> um so uh, this will be more of the same and he's got a huge fan base uh, plenty of interest in this book down at number six we have the trespasser by tana french uh, we say that this is a sharp but shakily paced novel the sixth in her dublin murder squad mystery series and uh, this time detective antoinette conway takes center stage 
Uh, and in this case, um, she's solving a murder that seems really straightforward, but she suspects that all is not as it seems. Um, we say that uh, French is less adept than usual in weaving her main character's backstories into the central plot, but the underlying themes of loyalty and how far one should go to protect a person are what make this entry worthy of French's prodigious talents, though Conway is not her best mm. conduit. Just below that at number seven, Today Will Be Different by Maria Semple. And uh, this is about a, a woman, a mother, wife, cynic, cult-famous cartoonist who decides to be her best self uh, on a day that turns out to be nothing but a series of catastrophes. Her son is sick. Uh, her husband might be having an affair. Someone she fired years ago is now famous. Uh, her, she's passed her deadline for her memoir. And uh, we say that uh, some of the encounters are a bit too convenient and the trope of a day from hell makes for some shallow interactions between characters. But Semple augments these antics with uh, sections that dig deep mm. into Eleanor's past. In the end, the novel wraps up too neatly, but the ride is consistently entertaining. And just below that, at number eight, Winter Storms by Ellen Hildebrand. This is another uh, very seasonal story. Um, you can tell because the, the beach covers that we were seeing during the <laughs> summer have now been replaced by a beach covered in snow. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, why Why not? I mean, yeah. why Why spoil a good beach? Right, yeah. exactly. You've got it right there. Well, I think that's snow and not just sand. That's Looks been, like snow to that's me. That's been photoshopped. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, there's red and green plaid. There's snow. We, we all know what's going on here. And uh, this is the concluding chapter of her Winter Street trilogy. And we say the complicated web of familiar turmoil is almost too much to bear as the Quinn family <laughs> prepares for one last holiday season on Nantucket Island. Mm. This is a depiction of a family working through the tragedies of loss, love, divorce, and addiction. A dysfunctional family trying to survive the repercussions of mm. one another's decisions. And we say those already familiar with the series will find solace in learning the fate of the main characters, but readers looking for a light read will be disappointed. This is pretty emotional and uh, maybe a little scattered. Mm. And uh, I just wanted to note all the way at the bottom, uh, number 25, All the Little Liars by Charlene Harris. Um, this is uh, the ninth mystery in her series. I actually didn't know that she was writing mysteries in addition to the urban fantasy and paranormal work that she's right. best known for. But uh, apparently these have been going wow. on for quite some time. Yeah. And this is uh, the, the most recent book in the series since... Uh, 2003 so i guess she took a break right for a while to uh to to focus on uh, her other series so um coming back to mystery uh we said this is absorbing and uh, features a, a librarian in georgia who's a bit of an amateur sleuth she has a new husband and a baby on the way and her 15 year old half brother has recently come to live with her so everything seems fine until her brother and three of his friends disappear without a trace and we say that Aurora, a smart and witty protagonist, possesses all the Southern charm necessary to carry this entertaining series. And uh, Harris is going to be doing a tour to support it. Great. And that's what we've got on the fiction list. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Protella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gugi Wathiongo tells us about coming of age as a writer. We'll be right back. I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Today we've got Gugi Wath-Yonghua on the line. His new book is Birth of a Dreamweaver, a memoir of a writer's awakening. Hi, Gugi. So glad you could join us. Thank you. I look forward to our discussion on the new memoir. So after dozens of books and plays, you've written this this memoir, Birth of a Dreamweaver. Um, tell us a little bit about it. First of all, let me say this is a, uh, my third memoir in the series that began with um, uh, uh, Dreams in a Time of War, which was uh, my childhood. That was followed by In the House of the Interpreter, which was, uh, say, my high school years. And then this one, Birth of a Dreamweaver, Writer's Awakening is my third memoir, uh, based roughly on my college, my four years at college, mm. at Makerere University College in Kampala, Uganda, which was uh, also the period when I found my voice as a writer. So what made you decide to write a memoir in multiple volumes? And how many volumes are you planning for this? I don't <laughs> So far, <laughs> uh, the three volumes have gone up to, takes me to 1964, right? <laughs> and uh, so I have all the other years to cover. Uh, but I don't really know how I'm going to cover the other years, whether I'll do just one more volume to cover all the years of exile and return, or whether I'll do it in uh, bits and pieces. I don't really know. Yeah, it's, I'll let uh, sort of the theme and the period emerge. Yeah. But I do hope to do something differently about my exile. I may also mention that this that volume will be followed by a reissue of my prison memoir that I published some years ago under the title Detained, A Writer's Prison Diary. It's going to be reissued uh, as Detained, you know, a prison memoir or something like that, yeah. So it sounds but like... But thereafter, I need to do one, at least, at least one mm-hmm. on my years of exile, yeah. So uh, you mentioned dreams in uh, in two of your memoir titles. Um, what's the significance of of dreams to your writing and uh, being a dream weaver to you? Yeah, a dream has um, of course. <laughs> um, dream has um, you know several connotations. Uh, but the one I like best is, is the one where you, you are thinking of the uh, future. You are thinking of uh, possibilities. Uh, you are thinking of a vision and following that particular, you know, uh, vision. Having a, like the first one, uh, Dreams in a Time of War, this was because I was born in 1938, in Kenya, which was a settler, a British colonial state. And 1938 was obviously on the eve of the uh, Second World War. Mm-hmm. So my childhood was part of that war, 
with some of my brothers fighting with the British in various, you know, war zones. Uh, but when the war ended in 1945, it was followed in Kenya with the war which was led by Mao Mao, uh, or correctly, uh, Kenya Land and Freedom Army, between uh, 1952 to 1963 or 1960, uh, before we just got our independence. Now, so that really, that whole period coincides with also my childhood, my going to school, uh, up to and including my high school years. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in a time of war, to also have a sense of tomorrow, I hope that tomorrow will come, that, as my mother used to tell me, uh, to remember that no matter how long or how dark the night, she used to say, every night, however long, always ends with dawn. Yeah. So it's that sense of dawn, no matter how difficult or, or how many difficult there are in the present, that I find captured in the idea of um, dream. Yeah. Dream, of course, is the quality of the idea of imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you are also, in a way, when you are dreaming, you're also imagining. You know, a dream is a specific so kind of imagination only is not necessarily conscious, you know, dream, but, you know, uh, writing, I like to describe writing as um, conscious dreaming. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So when I'm thinking of dreams, I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm dreaming, but consciously, right? Yeah. Now, then when I come to you know, birth of a dream weaver. Yeah, because uh, in my when in my childhood, I used to hear stories, and I talk about that every evening. Was a very important uh, session in storytelling. Uh, when I went to high school uh, in how to interpreter, I learned to tell myself stories, not through books. I read books of stories, novels, and so on. And I continued this into uh, Makere University College. Now, at Makere, instead of just reading books, right, I learned to weave stories. So tell, I, I, woke, I found my voice as a writer. So that's why I also call it uh, a writer's awakening. Hmm. Yeah. Now, the way the, writer, uh, the writer's awakening is in two senses. One, um, as I say in the opening pages of the memoir and in the closing pages, I frame my experience in Makere this way. That I entered Makere in 19... 59, a colonial subject, and left in 1964 a citizen 
mm. of the Republic of Kenya, right? So, and in that very period, I had become also a writer. So some of my novels, like Weep No Child, The River Between, I began writing them when I was a colonial subject. But ironically, they were all published uh, when I was a citizen. So there's kind of symbolism in all that. But anyway, uh, that's a period when I became a writer, when I learned how to weave dreams instead of just uh, listening to dreams woven by others. I became one of the weavers of dreams, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this time and, and what you just said about when you first went to college um, uh, and, and then by the time you graduated, um, it was almost two different uh, countries. Can, can you tell us a little bit, you know, just tell us a little bit about what was going on uh, there, but also at the university during this time? Yeah, first of all, you know, uh, as I said, the subtitle of the memoir is a writer's awakening but there was another kind of awakening during that period if you look at the when you look back at the period say you know um, when I entered um, um, McKenna College which was by the way uh, part of the University of London uh, McKenna was one of those colleges or university colleges founded by the British in most of their colonies in the 50s uh, with the hope of creating an educated elite with whom they assumed they would sort of continue having a kind of partnership. Uh, uh, although under the empire, that's how they imagined it. So there was the University of West Indies. Uh, there was Ibadan in Nigeria, University of Ghana in Ghana, Makere and Malaysia. Yeah, you know. So they were part of those series, you know, of, of colonies. Makere, where I went to, was the only university college serving Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, uh, Malawi. Uh, Zimbabwe, but then called Southern Rhodesia, and Zambia, Northern uh, Rhodesia, as it was called then. Yeah. Um, now, now, at the same time, between 1959, when I went to college, when I graduated, many countries were becoming independent. Ghana. 1957, Nigeria, 1960, uh, Tanzania, 61, Uganda, 62, and eventually Kenya, 1963. So it's a period when the, the long years of anti-colonial resistance and nationalist movement all over Africa climaxed in many countries uh, attaining independence Status. So I also see it as a period when many countries awakened in Africa, awakened to new nations 
or to nationhood. So I see it as I was coinciding with my period when I, with the period when I, I, I when I, I found my voice, you know, the period of my, the period of my awakening as a writer. But that period was also one of turmoil, okay? So it's not simply that new nations were being born, but were also birth pains as well. You know, for instance, uh, the Congo became independent about the same that during that period. But there was so much chaos in the Congo that the chaos of the Congo became also a metaphor of the times, you know. And we grew up under the, you know, the, I hope our countries don't eh, mm. uh, have the chaos or the Congo, that kind of thing. So these countries, although they were attaining independence, but really it was also the conditions of the uh, Cold War, okay? So the Cold War was going on, and so intensifying, right? And we did not know it at the time in a conscious kind of way, but we were being affected by also what was going on in the world. Yeah. What I try to do in, in the memoir, uh, I've, I've developed, first of all, explain this. I've developed um, a view which I put in um, a theoretical text called Globalectics. Uh, theory and politics of knowing. By globalectics, I mean how no matter where we are, either as individuals uh, or as communities, we are affected, something in our daily behavior, by events, something happening far away, right from us. We've had an impact Although when we experience them, we experience as if they are local events. But we find they have ramifications, or rather, their impact on us uh, has comes from a, a long history, or comes from, they have called vibrations from other things which have happened, you know, far, you know, from us. So, in the memoir, weaving, I weave all those things together uh, to show how the, for me, going to Makerere, as a student at Makerere here, but I was being affected, impacted by things which were happening in Uganda, in East Africa, in Africa, uh, in the world. So for reasons I talk about the impact of... Um, American students who came to our college and their behavior and everything as part of the program, which was, I think, initiated by or inspired by Kennedy's, John F. Kennedy's accession to power, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you are regular students like any other, I mean, you know, but their impact was very huge in terms of how they dressed, how they behaved, you know, how uh, playing frisbees and, you know, and other things. And they became part of the college. And they really did actually impact the rhythm uh, of life in a college. 
But now, on looking back at that period, I can see the uh, the British way of life in a colonial sense. In some ways, those have been challenged by uh, what is almost like a symbol of um, American ascendancy uh, in the world and the British uh, receding power receding in the world, right? Right. Yeah, uh, but in Makerere, they were just regular students. They were not coming on any mission. They were just regular students. Okay, well, they came on a mission to uh, provide teachers for East African schools. Okay, mm-hmm. but they had an impact. Okay, on Makerere, and I talk about that in my memoir. Uh, right. A good example is, uh, for instance. Uh, in Makerere College and around the British schools and colleges, Shakespeare was very, very important. Uh, playwright, still very, very important, but he was very central. And production of Shakespeare was a regular feature. Uh, you know, in all schools in Kenya and also theater companies in Kenya and uh, Uganda. Um, now comes. <laughs> uh, these American students, they want us to do uh, Shakespeare in African robes, right? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I remember getting really very excited about is actually, you know, taking part in the production of Macbeth with all the Macbeth being an African chief, all right, and uh, <laughs> and wearing sort of Ugandan traditional wear and so on. Right, you know, and so very, very, so very exciting. Mm-hmm. The same Shakespeare, but we looked at him in a slightly different way, right? Right. So small things like that, they made an impact, yeah. But there were other visitors in Makere uh, who also, you know, who brought the, uh, the other world to us. Louis Armstrong came to our place once. Uh, but the most important thing for me at Makerere at the time was the 1962 conference of African writers of English expression. People, writers like Achebe, all the young writers of Africa at the time came there. Achebe was there, Warshenka was there, you know, Kofiawuna, the late Kofiawuna was there, and even writers who were then in under house arrest or in prison in South Africa or were in exile, their texts became part of the conference. Mm. But more important, well, not even, well, but as important was the presence of, say, Langston Hughes was part of that conference. And Langston Hughes was accompanied by the leading, one of the leading African-American critics of the time, Sordas Redding. Now, one of the things that I remember, and which I talk about in the memoir, is one day, you know, um, Langston Hughes asking me to show him Kampala, right? <laughs> wow. And, and I think, oh my God, huh? this, I'm going to show this, literary icon of the Harlem Renaissance, you know. I imagine, 
that the, I'm going to show him the big things of Kampala, the, the cathedrals, you know, all the temples, you know, uh, all the wonderful modern residential areas on various hills in Kampala, because Kampala is built on hills, right? But when we go to, the first stop we go to is a, a kind of uh, Ramshako place, a kind of um, a place where artisans are beating metal and creating tools, the drunks are passing by, you know, there's, there's strong illegal liquor brewing is going on mm-hmm. there, there's noise, there's screams and so on, right? Uh-huh. And we walk around there, uh, all the time I'm thinking, this is just a stop, we are going to get a bus and go to the city to show him the glorious things, huh? But he never wants, he never seemed to want to leave the place, right? <laughs> and after we mingled with the people there and so on, we, he said, okay, we go back to Makera, right? So I was very much impressed with this interacting with the regular people in a very natural manner, meaning he very fascinated by whatever people were doing where they were beating metal into plates or saucepans or anything that was going on, right? Yeah. So those kind of things made a very big impression on me, and I write extensively about Langston Hughes and that experience in a memoir uh, about our Dreamweaver, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Gugi Wathiangwa, the author of Birth of a Dreamweaver, and uh, is telling us about these amazing cross-cultural experiences during university in this very turbulent, exciting time uh, in East Africa. So you said that you wrote your novels um, while you were a colonial subject, but they were published while you were a citizen, your early novels. Tell us a little bit about what the writing of them was like and uh, and what the publishing experience was like i imagine things have changed a little bit from uh, in the in the intervening time so uh, many of our listeners may not know what publishing uh, was like for you at that time yeah first of all in terms of myself first of uh first of all, i when i went to Makerere in 1959 remember i come from um a village, a rural community in Kenya where I grew up. I talk about them in uh, Dreams and Time of War. The farthest I'd ever been outside my village was when I went to high school, which is about 20 miles away. It was a boarding school. But even then, it felt like I'd gone to another world, okay? And now, 
from here to be in Makere, which is another country, it's a neighboring country, far from my home in Kenya, traveling by train in second class, because previously uh, all travel or facilities in Kenya were for Europeans only section, for Asians only section, and the rest for Africans, okay? Mm. Trains were the same. First class section for Europeans only, second class section for Asians only, and the third class, the most crowded and everything was for Africans. Now, for the first time, they've been allowing some Africans put that way, <laughs> to travel second class. In that way, they they racialized uh, second class. Huh? <laughs> so instead of calling for Asians only, it became now just second class. Okay? So travel back here in second class becomes a very big thing. Mm-hmm. Right? So I mean, Makere, when I get Makere, there has never been, I never come across any novel by any writer from East Africa. Okay? So, writing books is not something which I assumed. Okay? But in Makere, of course, I came across Caribbean writers like George Laming, uh, writers like Ch- Chinua Achebe, and of course the English writers whom I had um, read. But even then, to assume, for me to say, as I did, I told other students that I was writing a book, I was going to write a book, was like talking about something which had never been heard of, of a student saying that they are going to write books when they were still students, right? That was the first thing. But then sometimes, you know, but of course we are helped by other factors. For instance, I did my first book, The River Between, was uh, as part of a competition, which was organized by the Lycia Bureau in Kenya, or serving East Africa. And it was the only publishing house, really, a very small one, but, you know, uh, they organized that conference with money, I think, given to them by the Rockefeller Foundation, again, the connection between here and there, uh, Rockefeller Foundation. So they organized what they called East African Novel Writing Competition. That's how I came to write my first novel, which would later be published as The River Between. It was for a competition, for money, if you like, okay? Yeah. Uh, but even before that, but even before that, uh, I had written some, some short stories, and I was daring enough to think I'd publish, I'd have them published. So I put them in an envelope, looked at the names of publishers from the books I was reading. Uh, I think I do it. I think like Jonathan Cape at the time, and another one called Hutchinson. I sent a story, the eight of them, and uh, of course they, I got my first rejection slip. Okay? 
But then, with Hutchinson, although they rejected the stories, they said something else. They said, but if ever you write a novel, can you please let us see it? Okay. So the fact that a publisher, whom I don't even know, was telling me that there was a possibility that I might write a novel <laughs> was itself very, very important to me, right? Mm-hmm. So when the idea of the competition came, the idea that I could write a novel was already planted in my mind, right? <laughs> so there are many fact factors. But one other thing I like to say is this. Sometimes there's some uh, ignorance can sometimes be blessed, okay? Or ignorance sometimes can be a blessing, okay? Because the very fact that I did not know the... I had no experience of publishing or whatever... I don't imagine any difficulties in the way of publishing. I thought you wrote things, you didn't have a publisher, they publish your book, okay? (laughs) Or whatever. So I didn't have anything that would, would tell my would play games with my, my with my mind, say you cannot do it or it's difficult or thing like that. I thought it would be easy. Write stories, put them in an envelope, take them to a publisher, they publish and so on. Right? <laughs> yeah. So there's a way in which not knowing too much of the difficulties also helped in making me dare to enter the, the arena, yeah. Having said that, it was difficult to publish for the simple reason that, as I said, there were no publishing, local publishing houses. All the publishers available were in London, except for the East African Literature Bureau, but they were publishing very tiny books, you know, for on customs, you know, and other things like that, you know. Yeah. So it was really quite a, a challenge in some ways. Okay. But also, quite frankly, there were also possibilities. You know, for instance, you know, in my career in the English department, there was a literary journal called Pen Point, equivalent to a similar one called the Horn in Iberdon University. And this literary magazine by students, literally with the faculty help and so on, was really a very, very important forum in igniting my imagination and that of my other, you know, fellow student writers. Right, and I, and since then I've always, even today, I've really have the highest possible respect for student magazines, undergraduates or school magazines, because they give me a forum. Right? Yeah. We've been talking with Gugi Wathnyonga. You can find his memoir, Birth of a Dreamweaver, in stores right now. Gugi, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time for this. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed takes us to the land of comics and cosplay. Stay tuned.
Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about New York Comic Con. Hi, Calvin. Hi there. So um, you're not actually covered in glitter, so uh, (laughs) I always feel like you should be after this event. Well, usually someone asks me, what? kind of costume did you wear? You know, I'm usually, you know, a cosplay has become almost synonymous now with Comic-Con culture. Right. Um, I think if you was more of a t-shirt guy. Well, indeed, that's what I am. That's what I am, in fact. And I had an array of t-shirts laid out for Comic-Con. But, but yes, Comic-Con, um, uh, the giant mosh pit of popular culture uh, <laughs> arrived in New York City um, four days uh Believe it or not, um, I mean, I call them megacons now, the New York and San Diego. Um, even more tickets sold wow. this year than last. 180,000 tickets, 167,000 tickets last year. Now, there's always a debate of whether those numbers mean fans or ticket sales. That's not always the same because all these shows, they count differently in subtle ways. What's the difference? Well, d- d- different shows count different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you count um, a person who buys a four-day pass? I mean, is that one right. person or is that four people? I, I, uh, according to New York Comic Con, and they have said time and time again that they use a very conservative model, one person buying one ticket for one day counts as one. Mm-hmm. Now, I, honestly, what what does that mean for one person who buys a three-day ticket or a two-day ticket? I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I think uh, if they sold 180,000 tickets... There's a lot of fans. <laughs> that, that sounds pretty crowded. There. But because of that, and I mean, what you're seeing is a, a phenomenon there. I mean, this isn't the publishing part of it, but it's the operational part of it. But that's kind of interesting, too, is that these shows, and, and San Diego is much the same, more and more of the events are being moved outside of the building to the surrounding area. Um, New York has an interesting feature in that they don't kept ticket sales for safety. Uh, in San Diego, theoretically, they can only sell, sell 130,000 tickets. The fire marshals have capped it. But there is no real cap on New York, Con, New York, mm. New York Comic Con. Um, as, as explained to me, the um, New York State safety people basically look at the traffic flow. If traffic is moving fine, they have no problem. Hmm. So uh, so part of the thing really, and part of Lance Finsterman, who is uh, the Reed Pop um a VP who runs the show, uh, or actually runs Reed Exhibition's whole pop culture convention um, division, their plan is to move more events off the floor, to get people off of the floor periodically. Uh, BookCon, the well-known book uh, promotional right. venture, usually it's coupled with uh, Book Expo. Well, it's interesting now. It's become a movable feast. They've moved it now to... Uh, New York Comic Con. Now, it's still going to be part of Book Expo when that rolls around. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the first time, they used it at New York Comic Con. It's a block away at an event space called Hudson Mercantile. Uh, But its it's basic um, function was to draw people off the floor. And so they actually, this year, they added about two new spaces. They added one last year, the Hammerstein Ballroom which is very close to the uh, convention center. Uh, Now they use a theater at Madison Square Garden. 
And one other thing that I'm forgetting. <laughs> there's another space, because I think there's three spaces that they use mm -hmm. uh, that total about 11,000 in terms of the capacity. And it's really just an effort to move people off the floor, to keep traffic moving. And uh, also to kind of make New York Comic Con kind of a big citywide pop cultural show. So are we going to see Comic Con equivalents of the Olympic Village popping up? Are people um, going to start building facilities just for this? <laughs> when when do we reach, yes. reach uh, bankrupting the city? Well, no, <laughs> I, I, we, we don't see that. What I think we will see is all various events branded as uh, New York Comic Con presents. Uh, at different places around the city. There may be comics things. There may be a live podcast recording. There may be a band playing. There may be maybe a play or or um, a happy hour. <laughs> but what you're going to see, uh, because actually they've had something for a few years called Super Week, and basically it's all kinds of events. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they may be, or for instance, at the Society of Illustrators, an exhibition about, you know, comics art or other kinds of things uh, that lead into um, uh, New York Comic Con. They've rebranded this year as New York Comic Con Presents. In the past, I think there was some people didn't know what Super Week was, and mm -hmm. this way they can tie events more closely to the to the uh, convention, um, promote the events a lot better, uh, and let people know that oh hey you can be a part of New York Comic Con even if you can't buy a ticket. Right. So, but now on the publishing side, there were great events going on on the floor. Um, um, you know, we're one of the few uh, news organizations that actually cover these megacons as publishing events and not media events. Mm. Um, you hear more talk of TV shows. Uh, there was, of course, that, but <clears throat> probably the biggest biggest news that coming out of New York Comic Con was uh, a small publisher, a formerly small publisher called Lion Forge. Launched um, in 2012 as a digital-first uh, comics publishing house. And they did some licensing of media properties and some original properties. Well, they've ramped up. They've hired a bunch of well-known publishing people, uh, people like Rich Johnson, who is like the co-founders of Yen Press, the uh, graphic novel imprinted Hachette. Um, Joe Illich, who was a senior editor at DC Comics, uh, was part of the um, Milestone um, Comics, which is an early African-American imprint at DC Comics. Uh, these are well-known people, and, and really about, about eight or nine people. They're ramping up to a full-service publishing house. They launched uh, a new kids' imprint. They already had one called Roar. Uh, now, Roar just will just do uh, teen and YA graphic novels. And a new imprint called Cub House. You get it? The mm -hmm. Lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Cub good. That's just, good. A, just making sure yeah. you're with me. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's going to be for uh, uh, um, uh, pre-K to 12. Wow. And they're also launching a superhero universe. They are um, uh, going to launch a seven series. It's called Catalyst Prime. And they make very – look, diversity is a big, uh, as it should be, big concept in publishing, whether you're prose or comics. Uh, there's a lot of lobbying around it. People are tired. They want, they want content that reflects the world around them mm. uh, and not just a handful of, like, you know, old white dudes, even if we like those old white dudes. Right. Um, so um, uh, Catalyst Prime is uh, – they wouldn't tell us what it's about. They made, they made sure we knew it's going to be an inclusive universe – uh, that will include heroes of color, um, but they also announced a, 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 a long list of veteran professional 
talent, writers and artists um, that were very, that's very diverse. Uh, Amy Chu, who has written Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Priest, an African-American comics writer who's written Black Panther, uh, Alexa Campy, um, mm. who let's just say is white, but she's written all across and she's a much respected comics writer, um, no matter what she's writing about. Uh, so this is a very exciting new entry. Uh, they've clearly got some resources and they're going to be publishing uh, comics, periodical comics, graphic novels. Oh, they also acquired an independent publishing house called Magnetic Press. Very young, independent, mm-hmm. focused on licensing uh, literary European graphic novels, doing English translations and publishing and then really beautifully produced, you know, hardcover and trade paperback edition. So they are now a part of Lion Forge. So they really, they're really aiming to produce across the whole market, superhero comics, indie, literary, arts-oriented comics, uh, kids, both from pre-K all the way through um, YA. And of course, like I said, the big, you know, sprawling, um, action-packed superhero um, superhero universe uh, that, you know, will always have a place in the right. American comics marketplace. So this is very interesting and very new. So um, it, it sounds like they've got... Uh, Big plans and a lot of backing and a lot of interest. They've got a lot of backing. Uh, they've got a lot of resources. Uh, they've they've hired really well-known, experienced people. So this looks like – it really looks like they're in. And as one of the editors told me, that they're in this for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to compete at the highest level. So it looks like they're, they're, they're in a – they're placing their bets. They're getting their cards lined up. So – Everybody's got their eyes on Lion Forge right now, coming out of uh, this year's huge, over-the-top, bombastic <laughs> New York Comic-Con. That's the way we like our Comic-Cons. Big, bombastic, and full of news. <laughs> and cosplay. Yes. Oh, yes. Believe me, there's, there was plenty of cosplay, to be sure. So, um, was there any other exciting news? Did Lion Forge uh, take all the oxygen? Well, in the they room were or? big because it's always interesting seeing a new publishing house that's sure. got a lot of resources launched. But yes, obviously, um, manga, of course, uh, is an important aspect. Um, I talked a little bit with Viz Media, one of the biggest manga uh, distributors, uh, producers, and anime distributors also. Um, they were there. Uh, you know, they've got the three biggest selling series. Mm in manga right now Tokyo Ghoul um, which is like a vampire uh, or One Punch Man which is a superhero parody I mean manga is not a superhero uh, tends to not do that but they do uh, they have a number of parodies of American comics and that's one of the hugely popular ones and Assassination Classroom which I actually have not read, but it's a huge, huge seller. But what a title! It, it is, yeah. it is, and it's yeah. <laughs> well, they have a uh, manga have a history of dystopian classroom series, and I think this is along the lines. I, I've got to catch up with. Uh, also, another really big news is Kodansha, another giant Japanese right. publishing house. They have probably one of the biggest global manga hits now, Attack on Titan, mm. which is a multi-volume series about. Um, giant flesh-eating monsters that prey on this on on mankind. Uh, the scenario is this walled city at bay from these horrible monsters and the, what they go through to protect themselves and and to try to wow. defeat them. What they're doing, this has been a huge seller. It's sixty million copies of all of the mangas have been sold worldwide. They are sponsoring. This doesn't happen very much in Japanese manga publishing. 
They're turning the characters and the storytelling universe uh, over to American creators. In, and they're doing basically an all-star lineup of Western creators doing s- short stories uh, set in the Attack on Titan universe. Mm. And they've got about 16 uh, terrific um, Western artists. Uh, Paul Pope, uh, Scott Snyder, who writes Batman, Gail Simone, who has done everything, uh, Wonder Woman, you name it. Uh, Faith Aaron Hicks, uh, an indie comics artist who's won an Eisner. Um, uh, oh, there's, they're, they're all over the place. So this is an author an, an anthology. Uh, they're launching it with a 50,000 copy first printing. Wow. Uh, this is, this is like, this is huge news because this is a Japanese manga company who's, that is very interested in making sure that Western comics fans pay attention to mm. this huge, uh, comics franchise in the rest of the world. Now it's a it's big among manga fans here in North America, but this is clearly an effort to basically bring a little crossover attention to this uh, global manga otaku affair. <laughs> wow! So, yeah, yeah. So so that was a big. They launched the book uh, there, and I uh, actually came away with an Attack on Titan anthology t-shirt so (laughs) my work here is done yes well Kevin thank you so much for bringing us all this news Um, I I hope your t-shirt collection continues growing by leaps and bounds Um, and uh, we we always we always love your recaps so thank you very much pleasure's all mine and now a final word from our sponsors hi I'm Belle Boggs the author of The Art of Waiting and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Colin Dickey, author of Ghostland. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 